Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. I'm going to read to you from the passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll begin reading at verse 2 this morning. I believe it will be on the screen as well. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the great, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's a lot of passages, like I shared with you, that talk about Jesus being the Davidic king, but none as famous as Isaiah chapter 9. I, I would say that's probably the most famous of all of those. And this morning, because it's Christmas Day, uh, we have decided to share with you four ways that we are called to approach Christmas, four things that we can learn from this passage about how we should live into the Christmas season. So here's the first one. If you're taking notes, I put it this way in your note sheet. Christmas shows you how to face the dark. How to face the dark. So I got this fancy little thing here. Marcel, do you remember this? This was a gift that was given to Marcel for his 50th birthday, and so I'm going to use it today in honor of that and in the birth of Jesus. And so um, here's what I'm going to do. How to face the dark. Here we are. Now, obviously, it's, it's dark, but it's, it's not that scary um, because when I was a little kid, I was scared of the dark, but now I'm not so scared, and, and this is just okay. So what's the big deal about darkness? I can walk around freely, I can move, I obviously don't really know where I'm going, but what's the big deal? So here's the question that I have with respect to darkness, what's the big deal? Did I scare any of you? Oh man, I thought I'd scare at least a few, Marcel, but I didn't, you're too smart for me. Darkness can leave us in a world of hurt. Can it not? It can leave us in a world of hurt. I remember when I was a little kid, especially around the age of five, six, I was afraid of the dark. We have a lot of kids here this morning. How many of you kids are between the ages of four, five, six, and seven? Where are the kids between four and seven? Look at all of you. 
I'm not sure about you, but when I was your age, I was so afraid of the dark. I had such a vivid imagination. My older siblings weren't scared of the dark, but I was. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night in a cold, nervous sweat, and then, of course, your imagination's running wild, and everything, like behind the closet or underneath the carpet or underneath the bed, there's a monster, there's a threat, there's the threat of darkness. Every sound, every shadow would scare me. And that's one of the reasons why I absolutely loved Christmas as a kid. Think about this with me. For three weeks out of the year, it meant that every single room, pretty much every room, had a nightlight. In my room, you would maybe, uh, you'd have neighbors who would string lights outside, and so all that light would flood into the room and make it a little bit lighter. And then also, if you open the door out in the hallway, you would have a little bit of light. The kitchen would have some light. And of course, in the living room, you have the Christmas tree, and it's flooded with light. So what this means is, just for three weeks out of the year, the nightmares would cease. The fear would be gone. And I felt like that was such a liberating season for me as a child who was scared of the dark. And I think... That's a, a very fitting metaphor for what we're looking at today from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, whether you're five years old or you're 105. So look, if your Bibles are open, look at this passage again with me. It says this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So what this passage is saying is that all the darkness in the world is overcome with light. All the despair and hopelessness is overcome with hope. Now, the author wants us to see that this darkness is ultimately death. Merry Christmas. What a great verse. So Marcel and I, we talked about this. Um, we're going to be kind of like good cop, bad cop. I'm going to beat you down, and Marcel's going to lift you up. So Merry Christmas. You're welcome. So we're going to start with some, some sad news here. Darkness is ultimately about death, and the author wants to highlight something for us, something we all know to be true, that death is the great enemy of us all. It is the great enemy. It has a 100% success record since the dawn of time. And yet, what the passage is highlighting for us is in the midst of this deep darkness, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A light has dawned. But I think there's something unique about uh, us as Canadian Christians today. It's not as though it's unprecedented. It's just that I think it's more rampant than it's ever been. And it is this. We have a very unique culture in Canada in which we are kind of in a spiritual state of five-year-old Justin, deathly afraid of the darkness. More than any other time in human history, or at least in Canadian history, we are afraid of the dark. Why is that the case? Well, let me just share a couple things with you. Number one, there are less Christians in Canada right now than any other time in Canadian history. 
And at exactly the same time, we have two other groups that are on the rise. The first is a rise in atheism and agnosticism. That is, I don't believe that there is a God or some being who created the universe, or I'm not so sure. And then there's another group who are, of people who are saying, I'm spiritual but not religious. And so that is to say, I, I don't really know what's out there. I don't know who the creator is. I don't know what the light is, but maybe there's something. And so here's what this means. We have a whole culture of people who, again, like I said, are in the spiritual state of five-year-old Justin who are afraid of the darkness. They sense that the darkness is coming, but they don't know what to do with it. Let me give you one such example. I'm, I'm not endorsing this, but this past week, Julie and I decided to take the plunge, and uh, we watched the Barbie movie. Yep, we did that. And it's really interesting, right at the beginning of the film, if you've seen it, you know that the whole movie starts with Barbie. She has like 100 people over at her house. And then she asks this bomb a question. She says, hey guys, have any of you ever thought about death? And the question just looms over the whole party. Everyone looks at her. Everything stops. And as a Christian, I'm like, wow, where's this movie going to go? This is interesting. And for the next two hours, they avoid the question. Because they don't know what to do with it. They just don't know. And so here's what this means. When, when we have friends and family members and coworkers and, and neighbors who don't know Jesus, who don't really know what's out there, they look at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 and they say, there are people who are walking in darkness, but they, there is no light. There are people who are walking in the, in the valley of the shadow of death, but a light will not dawn. And so you have family and friends, and coworkers, and classmates, and neighbors who are walking around living life. They're going to McDonald's, they're going to the mall, they're watching Netflix, they're going to work, they're going to school, they're, they're doing life, walking around in the darkness, wondering, is there more than this? Is there something bigger? Is there something greater that is out there? And I'm telling you, that's the reason why, friends, we have so many friends here in Canada who are so filled with angst, who are trying to extrapolate God-sized meaning out of all these things in our lives. It's why we're so obsessed with politics. It's why we're so obsessed with kind of controlling our lives with material things, with trying to get the best romance, trying to accumulate wealth. We're trying to extrapolate things out of this life because all of us are walking in darkness. And there is no light. There are those who are walking in darkness and they don't see the light. They don't see Jesus as the Lord of light. And it's the reason why I want to convince you, friends, that you in your orbit right now, especially as I recognize the majority of the people here, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, maybe some of you here don't know Jesus. Maybe you're curious. But I know for 100% of us, you at least know someone in your immediate orbit who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't see him as the light in the darkness. This text stands in opposition to that. This text says that the darkness is overcome by the light, that despair has given way to hope, 
and that death itself is vanquished by the salvation of the one who brings it, that being Jesus. I know that there are many of you who have read Corey Ten Boom. I think she encapsulates this perfectly when she says this. I have held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. Right? We have, we have so many friends, maybe even we ourselves, we're just so consumed with trying to accumulate experiences or, or money or wealth or romance or whatever else it might be. We just want to have something meaningful in our lives. She says, I've, I've held a lot of things. I've lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. And so this text shows us how to face the darkness. And number two, it shows you how to trust God's faithfulness beyond what your eyes can see. Trust. I don't know about for you, but for me, trust is a very big deal. I am one of these type of guys that will be very quick to give trust to somebody for all its good and its bad. But when that trust is broken, it takes a very long time for me to give that trust back. I don't know if that's how that works for you, but that's what happens, and that's how it works for this old guy. Trust. In order to trust somebody, to, to give that gift to somebody, your trust, we often look back at their track record. Are they a person of their word? Are they somebody that, that keeps their promises? Are they, a, are they a person of integrity? These are the, some of the things that, that we look at when we want to give somebody our trust. We want to look to the past to determine the level of trust that we want to give moving forward. But sadly, so very sadly, every one will usually at some point fall short of that trust because the bar that we have for trust is always much higher for somebody else than it is for ourselves. We always expect more of others than we do of ourselves when it comes to trust. And that relationship continues to change and the level that I put out for others continues to fluctuate as time goes on because my level of trust changes, therefore your level of trust must change exponentially more. And we continue to go on that wheel just like a mouse, and we keep running on that wheel, and we end up going nowhere with trust. Trust. Person-to-person -person trust can be so hard to gain, but you can lose it like that. And if that's how we deal with our coworkers, if that's how we deal perhaps with our spouse, if that's how we deal with friends, then we must ask the question, shouldn't we? How does it work in our issues of trust when we're referring to God? Because so often how we relate horizontally when it comes to trust is a precedent on how we relate vertically when it comes to trust. And sadly, it's not the other way around. In the verses of Isaiah chapter 3 to 5, Isaiah the prophet is talking about this whole issue of trust. And perhaps it's not so much the trust issue from person to person, but he's talking about a trust issue with God. What does that look like? And he is reminding the people of Israel that they need to look back to the past to determine their posture and how they need to move forward in their trust with God. So take a look with me again at verse number four, first chapter four. It says this, for in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. 
the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. For in the days of Midian's defeat, now that probably doesn't sound like a whole lot of clarity to us, but in the days of the reader, that was a huge flashback in time to point the people to God's faithfulness. You want to see the promises of God, Midian's defeat. You want to see if God is someone who keeps his word, Midian's defeat. You want to know if God can be trusted, friends, this is it, Midian's defeat. You know, Isaiah is referring to these events in history that has been told over and over again. It's one of these type of stories that at bedtime you want to tell your kids this, this great story. And as soon as you're done, the kids with great anticipation will say, Daddy, please tell it again. Tell us the great story of the warrior Gideon. And mom and dad, whatever the case may be, will nestle in and they'll tell the story again because it is that important. And in order for us to understand the story of Gideon, we need to go back to the book of Judges. And I want to encourage you at some time with your families to sit down around the table and read Judges 6, 7, and 8 to understand the story of Gideon. Because this is not just a story for the Israelites to remember the faithfulness of God. It is a story for us to remember the faithfulness of God. They needed to hear it then, and we need to hear it today. See, Israel, it was bombarded by the Midianites because they, of their disobedience to God. Year after year, for seven years, they faced the invasions of the, uh, the uh, Midianites, the Amalekites, and the eastern foreigners. They would come in and they would destroy their cattle and they would destroy their flock. Blow after blow after blow for seven years straight. They were getting bombarded. And Israel then goes on its knees and it comes before God and says, God, please. And God intervenes and, and God raises up a warrior, a mighty warrior by the name of Gideon. And this is no small task for Gideon as a calling upon his life to go into battle. And Gideon, he gathers 32,000 men strong to fight in the battle. But he's obedient to God and he says that's too much. So he's going to pare it down. He gets rid of 10,000. So he's left with 22,000 men strong to fight. And God says, there's more. So he pares it down even more. And Gideon is left with 300 men for battle. 32,000 men strong down to 300. Can you imagine what those men were thinking? How are we going to do this? How are we as 300 men going to go up against the Midianites who are known to be as thick as locusts and who have camels as numerous as the sand on the seashore? How is it possible? But I'm sure you know the rest of the story already. Gideon wins the battle. He wins. Because you see, 300 men is not much of an army, but it's all that God needed to show that he was God that he is faithful and that he can be trusted. And the prophet Isaiah, he goes to the people of Israel and he reminds the people, remember the past. Remember the past. Re remember Gideon, that great warrior? Re remember him? Remember how against all odds he won the battle. God shattered the yoke that burdened you. Remember? Remember the, the bar that, that was across your shoulders? Shattered. 
And if that was not enough for the people of Israel to be reminded of God's faithfulness, he says one more thing. He says, remember the rod of your oppressors. Shattered. And that last one, oh, that one stings a little bit. That's like a little bit like salt in the wound. Because Isaiah is not only referring to the great battle of Gideon, he is also referring to the oppressors of Egypt. Because the word oppressor that is used here is the same word that's used in Exodus when it talks about the Egyptian taskmasters. He's brought their memory right back to their time of slavery and how God has delivered them out of Egypt. See, when we look back to our past, it determines, it really does, it determines our level of trust that we are going to place moving forward. The Israelites, they needed to be reminded of this, and we need to be reminded of this this morning as well, of God's faithful hand as we walk into the future. And in the moments, it can be tough to see God woven into the fabric of our life. It can be so tough, but I am sure in your life as there is in my life that when you look back to the past that you can see moments in life where you can say, that had to be God. That had to be God. There is no other way. That had to be God. Because it is in those moments that we have the comfort of knowing God's faithfulness in our lives. It is in those moments that the faithfulness of God brings an an overwhelming sense of peace for the unknowns that tomorrow may bring. It is the indescribable joy that we get to experience when our heart sometimes is is so dry. It it provides a, a sense of peace, an indescribable peace in a world that is hurting so much but it can also provide uh, unquenchable joy and hope for a brighter tomorrow. Trust. God is faithful. God is faithful. The prophet Isaiah alludes to this for a brighter tomorrow. In verse chapter five, it says this, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Friends, the battle is soon over. There is going to be a warrior's boot burning in store for us. Isaiah gives us just a glimpse of tomorrow, of the faithfulness of God. And faithfulness comes. Faithfulness comes wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he comes lying in a manger. For you see, Christmas shows us how to face the uncertainties of tomorrow. It reminds us to trust in God's faithfulness far beyond what our eyes are able to see. Because Christmas, it also shows us how to open a gift. So the rest of this text is all about the fact that the light of Jesus can come into your life and can change you, but it must be received as a gift. Kids, maybe uh, yesterday you opened presents for Christmas, or maybe you're planning on doing that uh, right after the service today, so you're like, Pastor Marcel, Pastor Justin, could you 
hurry it up a little bit because we got presents to open. But this is the season when you get to open presents. And when you receive them, you know that you receive them as a gift. They're not something that you've earned. It's not something that uh, you convinced mom and dad because I did such a great job or, or did these really good things, therefore I get those gifts. They're simply gifts. And in the same way, the story that we're looking at today highlights this reality. So here's a way of thinking about this. Uh, God wants to show us that salvation never comes through human ability or power, but by God's grace, through God's grace, period, dot. That's the whole point of the stories that we've looked at so far of having light in the darkness, of Gideon's 300, of the burning of boots. All these stories are highlighting the same central message that it's not about us. It's not about you and what you can do, what you can accumulate, what you can contribute. It's all about the work of our Savior, Jesus, and everything that he has done for us. And then it highlights the fact that Jesus himself is that gift. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, for to us, a child is born. The sovereign creator of the universe came down onto earth. He put on flesh. He dwelt among us. He was born. A son is given. He's been given to us as a gift. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't want you to miss the connection of what we just heard in that verse. I think this is the most profound statement made in human history. The creator of the universe, sovereign over all, stooped down, he put on flesh, he dwelt among us, he entered into the neighborhood, he became human. He became human. And these are the life and history changing forces that are at play in this story that there's a child who is born to a poor Jewish couple in an obscure town in Bethlehem, in a backwater province of the mighty Roman Empire. On this particular night, the world would change forever. And this is the reason why salvation is a gift and it cannot be earned. It's not just because God came down and he gave us a series of visions and divine instructions that we ought to live by, it's that he came down and he put on flesh and that he himself is the gift. Here's a way of thinking about it. It's not just that Jesus was born, it was that he was born for us. It's not simply that Jesus lived, it's that he lived for us. And it's not just that Jesus died, he died for us as our substitute, as our replacement so that we could be set free. Jesus is the gift. I just had a conversation this past week with my two boys. We were finishing up supper, and my oldest son, Liam, he asked the question, um, why did Jesus have to die to forgive us of our sins? Why couldn't he just have said, I forgive you? And so we decided to have a conversation, me, Noah, and Liam, and I said, Liam, if Noah broke one of your toys, and it couldn't be fixed by mom, because as you all know, I can't fix it, but mom can't fix it, um, what are our options? What can we do? And Liam, he thought about it for a little while, and he said, well, I suppose I could get him to pay for a new one, or I could forgive him. 
I said, that's exactly right. There's a costliness to this. Regardless of what happens, there's a cost. And he said, oh, yeah, well, actually, at school a couple weeks ago, uh, there was a, a person at school who smashed a window, and I guess the school could have paid for it, or the student and his mom and dad could have paid for it. But the point is, regardless, someone's got to pay. A debt has to be paid. And the story of Christmas is that you are not the one who has to enter into that darkness to pay that debt. You couldn't have done it by yourself. God knows that. And so he sends his one and only son into the world to be what John says, the propitiation for all of our sins. There's a big word we don't use a lot. The, the atoning sacrifice for all of our sins. The one who appeases wrath. The one who pays the debt. The substitute so that all of us could be set free. Jesus is the great gift. He is the gift. And so here's the point, friends, as we were talking about the darkness earlier, every irreligious person is frantically looking around in the dark, recognizing that darkness is coming for us all. And every religious person is frantically looking around saying, how, how do I achieve the gift? How do I earn it? How do I garner it? What sort of things do I need to manipulate or control or do in my life in order to obtain the gift? And both of them are walking in darkness. But the Christian knows, based on Isaiah 9 and based on Luke chapter 2, that Jesus himself is that gift for all of us. And so here's the question of Christmas that we're going to look at for the remainder of our time today. Have you come to grips with the claim of Christmas? There's two implications to this. The first one is this. There's no half measures with Jesus. Either Jesus is the gift or you are. Make your choice. There's no half measures, there's no in-between, there's no I do this, God does that, and the whole of that is that we become the gift together. No, Jesus is the gift. But here's the second implication of that. If you see Jesus as the gift, what that means is you can trust him with anything. You can go to him with anything. He can be your source of trust. He can be everything that you need him to be for your life. He is the Savior of our soul. Christmas means you can trust him. It means you can follow him with all of your heart. Christmas shows you how to open a gift. And number four, it shows you how to experience the zeal of the Lord. Really? What child is this? Have you ever thought of that? See, in the middle of this prophecy, between verses 6 and 7, Isaiah, he jumps ahead in time. One minute we're talking about a child that is born to us, and now we're talking about his government. We're talking about his reign. We're talking about his justice. We're talking about his righteousness. We are no longer talking about Christ the child. We are talking about Christ the king. And oh man, what a king he is. Take a look with verse 7. It says this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's what we've been waiting for. 
It's what we've been longing for, isn't it? Christ to return and to rule. Where sin is going to be no more. Where there's going to be no more war and, and peace is going to rule the day. Salvation will, uh, see, or starvation will cease and the existence of death will be no more. And the Apostle John in the book of Revelation echoes these words from Isaiah so many years later when he gets a glimpse of heaven, when he sees heaven with his very eyes. He says this in Revelation 21 verse 4. He says, he which is Christ the King will wipe away every tear from your eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. Perfect justice, perfect rule, and perfect righteousness. You see, verse 7 is a picture. It is a, it is a mere glimpse into Christ's rule that will have no end. And the mystery of Christ will continue to increase in us because we believe in an unfathomable God. Do you know the king? I hope you do. Because the next line in verse 7 is specifically written for you this Christmas morning. Listen to it carefully. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This line screams, I love you. I love you. The, 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 this is the Lord is so full of eager, so full of zeal to bring to completion the good work that he began in you. And then to walk you and to walk me with his hand firmly gripping mine to walk us into salvation. Where we will experience that perfect justice, that perfect rule, and that perfect righteousness. From cover to cover, of, from cover to cover of the Bible, God speaks of his redemptive plan of continuing to bring his people back to himself. Because you see what happens between verse 6 and 7 is the zeal of the Lord Almighty lived out for you and lived out for me. Between those two verses, everything changed for you and everything changed for me forever. It is here in the reading of this prophecy that you and I, we should take a long pause to grasp the, the gravity and the magnitude and the depth to which our Lord went to express his love for us, to express his zeal that would bring about the reality of this eternal salvation for us. See, this child... Our Christ. He grew in wisdom and he grew in stature and in favor with God and man. This Christ, our Christ, he had to be 100% man because God's justice demanded that human nature which has sinned had to pay for its sin. But no sinner could ever pay for another. This Christ, our Christ, he had to be 100% God because by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger for humanity, for you and for me, and to earn for us and to restore to us life and righteousness. And our Christ child, Jesus, who is the king, gave up everything to set us completely free and to make us right with God. Do you know the king? I hope you do, because as undeserving as we are, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, 
the Christ child. To die a brutal death on the cross so that you and I may live. So that we may have the complete forgiveness of all our sins. He took your sin, he took my sin, and he took it to the cross and he died so that we might live in relationship with him. We should have been on the cross. But God took our place so that you may live. That is the zeal of the Lord for you. But that's not all. Because three days later, he rose victoriously from the grave, defeating death once and for all. That is the zeal of the Lord Almighty for you. Accomplishing death so that you and I, we can look death straight in the face and say, where is your victory, death? Oh, death, where is your sting? But that's not all. Our Lord Jesus, he rose and he ascended into heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty interceding on your behalf. That is the zeal of the Lord Almighty interceding for you right now. And he does it because he loves you that much. But that's not all. There's still more. Because if you are a child of God, if you claim Jesus to be the Messiah, then you are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus, the King of Kings. We are heirs of, of God of the universe because of his amazing love. That is the zeal of the Lord for you. And that is the zeal of the Lord for me. This is the definition of love, isn't it? And he did it all for you and he, and he did it all for me. Because you see, friends, he loved us far before we could ever love him. And our love for him is out of response to his love for us. Because what we need to realize this Christmas day is that it starts with God and it ends with God. So what child is this? He's Christ the King. He's Christ the King. I have to ask one more time. Do you know the King? Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway, 